Okay, we'll get going, I think. Um, <clears throat> um, thank you very much for coming, everybody, in this nice, cold, chilly, dark English winter evening. Um, before we go any further, could you all please turn your mobile phones off? Because it's very embarrassing, isn't it, Ted, when phones go off in the middle of book launches? Ted was launching his, and he was making his own speech, and his own phone went off. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, so we're here to uh, talk about this wonderful book, which is Truths and Lies in the Middle East, which is the memoirs in English now of uh, Eric Rouleau, who was the doyen of the French Middle East press for several decades. I'm just going to read off the back here something that gives you an idea of the stature of the man. This is Noam Chomsky, no less, saying, For years, Eric Rouleau's reporting and commentaries on the Middle East were an incomparable source of information, insight, and understanding. The appearance of the autobi autobiography of this remarkable journalist, diplomat, and human being is an event that many of those concerned with world affairs have been waiting with eager anticipation. So I hope you are eagerly anticipating it, and in the end you can buy a copy of it at the back of the room there. Um, I'm going to ask you all a question. Does the name Eli Raful mean anything to anybody? Hands up. No. Well, that was actually Eric Rouleau. He was born Eli Raful in Cairo uh, to a Jewish family, a Jewish-Egyptian and um, made his way from there. He uh, ended up in Paris, where, of course, he was taken on to his own surprise by Le Monde as the Middle East man, um, surprised because he, were, he was Jewish and he didn't think that the Arab world was quite ready for that. But uh, as we will learn from our distinguished guest, <coughs> um, he more than made his way. Um, uh, there's nobody better qualified to talk about uh, Eric Rouleau than Alain Gresh, who's with us here this evening. Um, Alain, did, did you actually work with, with Eric? Or no, but I knew him quite well. Yeah, of course you would, yes. Um, they both uh, come from a very similar background because um, Alain was also born into a, a Jewish family in a sort of Italian-Egyptian Jewish family, if I'm not correct, if not incorrect, um, in Cairo. So they both, although... Slight half a generation separate, um, 12 years between them. Um, we were both born in 1948, as well as the State of Israel, so we'll have three, something in common there. But Eric was uh, 12 years before that. Um, and uh, so uh, Eric and Alain both, both came very similar backgrounds, ended up in France working for Le Monde, which, as we all know, is the most prestigious and best newspaper in the world, isn't it? And uh, Le Monde Diplo, which uh, Alain edited with great distinction for many years. Um, Alain has uh, left that, but uh, luckily hasn't disappeared into the woodwork. He's, uh, he's set up or helped set up and run uh, Orient 21, Orient 21, trying to get that right. Orient, that's XX121, uh, which is an amazing website. It has really good articles, very deep, well-researched articles, and it's published not just in French, but also in English, Arabic, and Persian. So there's something there for everybody. Um, so we're going to hear from uh, Alain for about roughly half an hour. Then I will exercise the chairman's prerogative and ask some questions, and then you can all um, chip in as well and ask questions, which will be much more intelligent than mine, I'm sure. Um, that's pretty much it. So without further ado, I will give um, the, the floor to Alain and ask you to give him a very warm welcome, if you would. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank 
Yeah, I should have introduced myself, actually, shouldn't I? Yeah, my name is Jim Muir, and I'm a, a visiting senior fellow here at the LSE's Middle East Centre, and uh, I've reported the Middle East for probably as long as uh, as Eric did. He gave up and became a diplomat. I'm not going to do that at my <laughs> stage in life. Um, but I've been there 40 years, 45 years. I live in Beirut, and I've worked for the BBC and many others. Sorry, can I give you the floor back? <laughs> Thank you for the... Invitation. Thank you for LSE and the Middle East Center for this opportunity to speak uh, about the life of Eric Rouleau, which is very rich. And uh, most of his life, he, he was a journalist. But I will end with the end of his work. I mean, in 1985, he decided to retire from journalism. He became ambassador. He knew very well François Mitterrand, who was the new, I mean, president <coughs> of France elected in 1981. He was made ambassador to Tunis, which at this time was ambassador to Tunis and to the PLO, because the PLO, after Beirut, was having uh, its headquarters in Tunis. He, will, he was more or less expelled from uh, Tunis because... Uh, uh, Bourguiba didn't like him very much, and so he went after to uh, to Turkey as ambassador. And then, for ten years, he um, he he wrote uh, independently. He was in the United States. He was in the Council of, of Foreign Relations, etc., etc. But mostly. Eric was a journalist, a, a born journalist. And one of the anecdotes he, he tells uh, is very, show us how he was. He was a young, uh, in Egypt, he was a young uh, student in the law university, and his father, like all father, wanted him to make a career, uh, and law seems to be a good career, and he wanted to be, from this time, a uh, journalist. So he was going to the to university, and uh, working a little with a, a, a daily called Egyptian Gazette. And uh, so he took the tramway to go to his work and uh, to go to the university and he saw in the street some a robbery of a, of a shop, people attacking a shop. So he went down from the... The, the tramway. He took. A, he tried to to go after the, the robbers, and he failed. And he went to the newspaper, and uh, he brought an article, and um, and the chief editor. I mean, he was 17 years old, and the editor in chief looked at him with some irony. But he took the article and he put. Uh, the title of the article, by our star journalist, Elie Raffoul. This was his first uh, journey, meaning that journalism was really his life. And uh, even when he became ambassador, uh, he was in some way frustrated. He said, uh, when he became ambassador, before I was writing for one million people, now I am writing for one reader, which is the President of the Republic. And, of course, it was m perhaps more influence, but he understood somewhere that it was not exactly the same. But what made uh, Eric so special, I think, is the fact that uh, he was, uh, at the same time, uh, born in Egypt, and he was Jew, 
and he came from a francophone family. This was the three main aspects of his character, and this, in my opinion, has made him what he was. He was Egyptian, and he grew up in a, a moment of the history of Egypt, which is very important, which is the end of the Second World War, and a new wave of nationalism, very strong anti-British nationalism. I mean, the main enemy in Egypt was Great Britain. You know, we hear many times that the uh, Egyptians were waiting for Rommel to come to Alexandria, they were waiting for the Nazi army, etc., which is in some way not false, but it was not the idea that there was, they were, there was any sympathy for Germany, but that Germany was, was far, it was not the enemy. And for the Egyptian people, the real enemy which was occupying the country since 1882 was the, the, the British. And so uh, um, Rouleau grew up in, his, uh, in this uh, atmosphere. He, remem he remembers the 1946 big demonstration against the occupation, uh, the, the creation of a committee of workers and uh, students against the occupation. He reminded that one of his fellow demonstrators was killed by uh, near him. And he understood, and I, I think in this it's very important, what was the national aspiration of Egypt and made him understand after when he came to France and, and working in Le Monde, what was the national aspiration of the third, what was not known as uh, the third world country. And he will cover uh, the struggle in Congo, in, in other African countries, etc. And he, f I mean, he felt in, in some way that it was a main um, movement of this part of the century. And I agree with him on this. I mean, if we go back to the history of the 20th century, the most important event is not uh, the communism, the fall of communism, etc. It's the end of the colonial system. And the fact that uh, today it seems to us quite normal that we don't have any more colonial system. But even in the 40s, not only in Great Britain, but also in France. The idea that the colonial f system was going to finish was not uh, so popular, so accepted. And so this made him understand uh, things quite well. And I will uh, tell an anecdote which is very telling about what was the atmosphere in France and how, he, how Eric worked. When he came to France after being expelled, he worked at l'Agence France Presse, which is like Reuters, the great uh, agence, the press. And at this time, there was no internet, no, no fax, no... So, to... There was this... Uh, everybody was waiting for Gabal Abdel Nasser speech after the refusal of the World Bank to, to give money for the high dam in Aswan. <coughs> And so there was something called the Ikut hearing. So you, 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 you went at, uh, I mean, you, you were hearing the Egyptian radio on shortwave and hearing what uh, Nasser was saying. So in, in this speech, you know, of course, uh, Nasser decided to nationalize the company of Suez Canal. And so, it, I mean, it, it was an agence de presse. I mean, uh, 
each minute count. So he made a, a thing, it's a, a, a dispatch, Nasser has decided to nationalize. And his uh, editor-in-chief blocked the information and say it's impossible. They will never dare to do this. <laughs> and I think Hulu understood that, understood that it, he, he dared to do it because it was really reflecting the will of the Egyptian people. So this is one of the important things of uh, the formation of Eric Hulu. The second is the fact that he's Jew. He was Jew and he never, I mean, he accepted, he grew up in a Jewish family. At one time he had the idea of being a rabbi which was, uh, well, okay, like uh, existential crisis when you are 14, we can understand. And then after he began to, to be interested in Jewish question. I mean, he never refused his Jewish identity. It was for him something important of his character and he, uh, he accepted it. And as it was in the 40s and all this discussion about Jews, uh, Zionism, uh, Palestine, going to Palestine, he began to be interested in the Zionist movement. At this time, uh, the Zionist movement in Egypt was legal. And this is very strange to understand. Till 1948, there was no restriction in Egypt on the activity of the Zionist movement uh, in Egypt. And he went to the Zionist movement. He was interested, and, but then he, he went uh, to join a, a young extreme left uh, organization called Hashomer Atzair, the Young Guard, which was a Zionist, Marxist, Stalinist at this period organization. A very strange one, but which had a quite big influence on the history of the Zionist movement and even uh, on Israel. And he went with them and he was some time with them. At the same time, demonstration, demonstrating in the, uh, in the street for the national liberation. And finally, he decided that Zionism was not the answer, that these people were not interested in the future of Egypt. And he considered himself as a, an Egyptian. And this is very important. I mean, he, he felt that he was Egyptian, an Egyptian Jew, but an Egyptian. And so he joined some extreme left groups. At this moment, the communist movement was quite divided. He joined one of the groups and uh, he, he became a, uh, a Marxist, even if I don't think he was ever very, very interested in ideological uh, questions. So this was the second aspect of his uh, uh, formation. And he has always been, at, I mean, interested on uh, the Palestine question, Israel, the future, and he really aspired at, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, at finding a, a way to peace between Israel and the Arabs. He thought that uh, the, the persistent war between Israel and Arab was a catastrophe for Israel, it was a catastrophe for the Arab world, and there was, he was interested in it. I will come back to, to this. And the third aspect of his education was the, uh, the French. Uh, that he was brought up in a, even if he was fluent uh, Arabic speaking, he was brought up in a, in a, in a family, not only which uh, uh, was speaking French, but which w was uh, worship, worshipping France. It's very difficult to understand. I can understand it because I, I, I grew up in Egypt. But there was a part of the Egyptian public, of course, many Jews, but also from 
Italian origin, Christian origin. They look at France as the country of human rights, the country of uh, liberty, of freedom, of... Uh, this will stop in 1956, of course, but at this time it was really very, very uh, uh, important. Uh, Eric said that in his book that uh, the only time he saw his father crying was in 1940 when the, the Nazi army crushed the French army and invade France. So, and most of his, I mean, meaning that uh, he grew up uh, learning French, learning French literature, and so when he came to, to France, it was a kind of normal thing. It was not a foreign country to him, even if there, there, there was not between him and France any family relation or... Uh, so, in, he, he was born in 1928. In 1951, he, he will be expelled from Egypt. Uh, expelled in some ways. They give him the choice, or you go in prison, or you renounce your Egyptian nationality, and you, you leave. He didn't want to go to prison, and he decided to leave. So, the charges against him, that was, he was a Zionist, and he was a communist, both of them. So... He, uh, he arrived in Paris, he was 24 years old, and he began to, to work, as I said, in Agence France Presse, and then <laughs> in Le Monde, and uh, uh, the, the in, a, in, a, in a moment where it was very difficult, I mean, being a journalist was not easy, it was not, uh, you are not well paid, I mean, it was difficult, but the fact that he spoke Arabic was, of course, something very important. But as I said also, during these years, the 50s, beginning of the 60s, he, he was covering a large part of the world. I mean, he was covering the Middle East in the British sense, meaning Turkey, Greece, uh, Cyprus, and the Arab Middle East. But he, he was going, he has covered also Africa, and especially the civil war in Congo after the independence, after the killing of Patrice Lumumba, who was the first president of, uh, of uh, Congo, which was uh, killed by a plot uh, by, um, in which uh, the Western country played an important role. Uh, here, also to understand, I mean, what was journalism at this period, he, he, he writes that he was making his article, and then he has to make 300 kilometers to find a phone, to phone Paris, and to dictate his article, and then to come back. I mean, it's difficult to, for us today, we have internet, we have uh, on spot every information, but okay. And he was covering the Middle East. In the Middle East, he was covering m mostly Iran and Turkey, because he could go there. Uh, Lebanon, because it was some kind of free country, and it's all. He was forbidden to go to any Arab country because he was Jew. And at one point, he, he was thinking that, say, okay, I mean, I will resign from the Middle East. I cannot cover the Middle East if, if, I, if I don't go there. And this came the big event. Surprise, which was not a surprise, he got an invitation, a personal invitation by Gabal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, to come to Egypt in 1963. And uh, he remembered his book, he said, why, why was this invitation? There were two reasons. One was political reason, 
We were in 1963. The war in Algeria, uh, uh, the, the French war in Algeria finished in 1962 with the independence of Algeria. And uh, Egypt was ready to have normal relations with France. And Egypt wanted relations with other countries and the United States and Soviet Union. The relations at this time with the United States were not very good. And Soviet Union, the relation was very good, but Nasser was not a communist, and he didn't want to have only bilateral relations with the Soviet Union. So having a journalist of the biggest newspaper uh, interview him, he thought this will be uh, a very uh, important thing. And second, they knew who was Rouleau. I mean, they knew they have expelled him, they knew that... Uh, I mean, it was not, I mean, he was expelled in 1951. It was the King uh, Farouk uh, government who expelled him. It was not uh, Nasser. But Nasser and the people around him uh, knew that he was a progressive, that, uh, for example, as I said, in, uh, in Congo, he defended uh, the, the national independence, he defended Lumumba, and which was the position of the French government. And so this was the reason of this uh, invitation. Uh, Eric Rouleau accepted with the agreement of, it, of uh, its uh, hierarchy, I mean, editor-in-chief, on condition that uh, uh, the trip will be paid by Le Monde, not by the, by the Egyptian government, and that he could put any question. And uh, one of the main questions Eric wanted to put to NASA was the fact that at this time the communi Egyptian communists were in prison. And uh, he said that uh, he, will, he was going to put the question to Gamal Abdel-Nasser. The Egyptian accepted, and uh, when he, he put the question of the communist, uh, uh, Nasser said, they will be free at the end of the year. Uh, and effectively, they, they have been freed after, bon, also, they, they will be free because it was a time, of, as I said, of an alliance between Soviet Union and, uh, and uh, Egypt, that uh, Khrushchev was preparing a big visit to Egypt for the inauguration of the first um, step, I mean, first phase of the uh, high dam uh, in Aswan. And uh, the Soviet also made a pressure on Khrushchev made a joke to Nasser and said, if you arrest the communists, when, when I will come to Egypt, you are going to arrest me. So I can't come. And uh, Khrushchev was uh, perhaps, uh, I, I, I can say it like this, the last real communist leader in the Soviet Union. I mean, he really believed in uh, communism. And he will stay three weeks in Egypt. You, can't, you can imagine now a... a any leaders going in a, an official visit and staying three weeks, making uh, a meeting, addressing the people, and in a way that some, sometimes uh, Nasser was very annoyed because it was a communist speech, I mean, about working class and the role of the working class, etc., etc. So there were some, uh, some tension, but... So, uh, the, the communists were, were freed and the... The, the interview was published, and from this time, I mean, Eric developed very strong relations with uh, Nasser. And this has consequence, he has access to, uh, to a regime which was not so open, 
and he has relation with not only Nasser but uh, people like Hassanin Haikal, who was the editor of the big newspaper Al Ahram and special uh, advisor to Nasser, and this gave him a quite uh, inside information. But it has also another consequence that at the moment that Nasser said he can come to Egypt, no Arab leader dared to forbid uh, to Rouleau to go to its country. I mean, if the leader of the national uh, uh, libera Arab liberation accepts Rouleau, I mean, it was difficult for Syria, for Iraq, uh, even for Jordan to refuse him, and he was accepted. And from this time, um, uh, he developed very, very strong relation uh, uh, with all the leaders of the, uh, the Middle East. He speaks quite a lot of Barzani because he met Barzani um, early in his career and he was very keen to defend the, the right of the, the Kurds. Uh, so uh, from this moment he became, I mean, a well-introduced man in all the political and diplomatic circle of the Middle East. The only country we, in which he has problem was Israel. Of course, he was able to go to Israel, but really he was considered by Israel as an enemy. I mean, Menahem Begin, who was at this time, I mean, the 60s uh, leader of the opposition, said that he was a, an Arab agent. And uh, Rouleau records that one of his trips after the 1967 war, he, uh, uh, he was summoned to the foreign ministry, and they said, look, we had a discussion. A part of the foreign minister didn't want uh, us to accept you on the Israeli territory, and a part think that if we don't accept it, it will be a problem for the image of Israel as a democratic country. So we decided to accept you, but you will not have any official interview with any, of, uh, any officials. One of the reasons of this is uh, the, and there are two chapters in the book about the 1967 war, and it, uh, Eric Rouleau was able to demystify the idea that this was a defensive Israeli war against a threat of destruction. And to understand how courageous Eric was at this time, we must remember, even if, we, if he was French, and uh, as you know, the Gaulle has taken very strong position against Israel ag aggression in 1967. At the same time, in France, the public opinion was, uh, I was going to say, 100% with Israel, which is not true because the Communist Party, which was very strong at this period, was not. But we can say 80%. And except the Communist uh, newspaper, the media were 100% with Israel during all the crisis. And I have lived it uh, as a young uh, man. I mean, it was really unbelievable, the, the idea that uh, we were on the eve of a new Holocaust, that uh, uh, there was a, a danger on the existence of Israel, etc., etc. So writing against this uh, story was very courageous, and we can understand that uh, the Israeli foreign go go government didn't like it. But they told him something else, which was very important, of course, that they hate him especially because he was Jew. If he was, if he had been, okay, a normal uh, French or uh, Egyptian uh, Muslim, etc., it would have been more or less normal. But the fact that he was Jew was 
something, uh, I mean, it was a treason for them. And, uh, but he, he continued to, to, to write about it, and he was one of the first to, um, to write about the occupied territory and what, what was the situation in the occupied territory at a moment where the official Israeli propaganda was that it was a liberal occupation. And I don't know if some of you remember this time when we say, we are very liberal, we have opened the, the bridge between the West Bank and Jordan, people can move and there is no repression, etc., etc. And uh, Eric Rouleau, who had access to the Palestinian <coughs> without a translator, managed to show that from the beginning it was not a liberal occupation. There is no, in any case, there is no liberal occupation, but it was very clear here. And especially he, he recalled one thing that in 1968 he had the first information about the use of torture by the Israeli army on a wide scale. And he wrote this, I mean, he, he tried to write, to write to write it in Le, Le Monde, and Le Monde refused to publish it. And uh, he, he wrote, uh, Rouleau in his memory, he says, I think one of the reasons, and I think it's true, it was very difficult for uh, a French public um, to believe that people who came from, I mean, descendant or people who have escaped the Holocaust were able to do such things. But, of course, we know now that there was widespread uh, torture, that the occupation was, uh, was uh, not liberal, etc. And f also it is from this moment, and especially in Cairo, that he get acquainted with Yasser Arafat. And this was a very, he developed also a very special relation with, uh, with Arafat. How long have you been? I was going to say five yeah. minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he developed quite, wrong, and he wrote quite a lot about the Palestinians, and he also, he has very, very inside information about the debate inside the PLO, um, all the, uh, was the insurrection against Arafat after 1982 and the defeat in <coughs> Beirut, etc., uh, etc. Et and he, I want just to, to tell an anecdote that he's, he gives in the book, which I, I like, that at one moment in the 60s, he, he wanted to, to go to see his uh, house family, so in Cairo. So he went with his wife, and they rang the, the, the door, and they asked. And he explained. And there was a couple of uh, young <coughs> Arabs, and they began to laugh and to laugh. And, and he was really shocked. And they said, you know, we are Palestinian. You have expelled us, and we have expelled you. <laughs> but they were joking, of course, and they became good friends, and uh, OK. <coughs> Uh, I, I, uh, I will finish with this. I mean, uh, Eric Hulot was outstanding. He was also a result of uh, the history of the region and of the history of the press. I mean, you don't have any Eric Hulot today. Not because, I mean, uh, you cannot replace him because the way you work as a journalist is completely <coughs> different. The way you access to information is different. The way, I mean, the Le Monde was an outstanding newspaper, not only in France. I mean, every, every uh, foreign minister in uh, every European country at least were reading the editorial uh, of Le Monde, etc. Et 
you don't have any equivalent today. But in these circumstances, I think uh, Eric Rouleau has played a very important role to, uh, I will say, to be a bridge between the Arab and the Western world, because he was part of both of them. And to m it was not, he didn't have any hostility against the West in general or against Western culture, etc., etc. He, he showed that he could uh, uh, bridge the gap between the, the two, and he thought even at one moment that he could bridge the gap between Israel and Arab, and he, re he recalled, and I let you read it, an attempt of having uh, Naum Goldman, who was the head of the Jewish World Council, to come to, <coughs> to Egypt. He was invited by, by Nasser, but finally, he didn't get the green line from uh, the Labour Party in, uh, in, uh, in Israel. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to kick off with a few questions, if you'll bear with me. Um, reading the book as a journalist, I found myself green with jealousy and, and envy because Nasser calls him, come and interview me. Uh, he's in Jordan during the fighting between the Fedayeen and the Jordanian army. King Hussein sends an armored car saying, come and interview me. I mean, all these people queuing up. Arafat invites him to sit in on Palestine National Council meetings. I mean, this is unbelievable for a journalist. I mean, is it partly down? Did he have Im immense charm, or was it the pull of Le Monde? Or how, how do you explain this extraordinary access, which journalists normally just don't get? <coughs> of course, he has a, a very particular charm, the fact that he, he spoke Arabic and he was from uh, Arabic culture it was also important. He understood uh, the people. He could he could make jokes with them. I mean, but also I think in part the relation between journalists and leaders is today very different. I mean, when you want a, a special declaration from a leader, I mean, you you read Twitter and you read mm -hmm. uh, Facebook or you you have in some ways it's much more easy. I was writing a, a, an article on the Gulf 10 years ago, and at one moment I said, but I have three quotations from Twitter. But it was official uh, quotation from foreign minister. In, in another period, I, I, I would have tried to meet uh, a guy, uh, to meet the, <coughs> the foreign minister, it would have taken hours. <coughs> so I think it was a part of his personal charisma, the fact that the more he knew people, the more it, it was, uh, he has access. And also, in, he went to Egypt last time before dying in 2013, I think, uh, after the revolution. He was in, I mean, at this time he has a wheelchair and he, 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 he couldn't go easily. He was in his hotel. There was a queue in front of his room of all people who wanted to see him. <laughs> so there was a part personal, but I think also there is a part that uh, in the way journalism is done today, I don't imagine uh, the same access. And also, I don't know how it is uh, here, he, but in France, for the generation of Eric Rouleau, and till my generation, you worked in the Middle East all your life. Okay, from the, the moment you begin journalism, 
and the moment you retire, you are working on Arab or Middle East. Today, if you make five years, it's maximum, and you will go to Latin America, and you will go. So this is also perhaps a, I don't know. You mentioned uh, in some detail his Jewishness, and he mentions it a lot in the book. He's obviously very aware of it, and it played a big role in his life. Um, overall, would you say that that was an asset? I mean, at some stage, it prevented him from going to Arab countries, but was it in general an asset? Could he have been Eric Rouleau without being Jewish? I think it was a, an asset for him. And uh, sometimes I say, you know, from my, uh, the journalist of my generation, to be a woman in the Arab world was an asset. Because most of the leaders and the people they met wanted to say, okay, we are not against women. I mean, there is a cliche that the Arab are against women. No, we give you access. And perhaps we give you access more than we give access to a man. In some way, the fact that he was a Jew, but a Jew who has positioned on the Palestinian question, I mean, uh, very clear, uh, supporting the Palestinian qu uh, question, I think it was also a, something uh, uh, very positive. Uh, when I made the conference in uh, Oxford, there was Avi Shlaim who was uh, here, mm -hmm. who told me an anecdote about, you know, Avi Shlaim has written a book about King Hussein. And he knew, he heard that King Hussein, when he heard about this, he had also somebody, one of his counselors, who said, I, I'm going to write about your, your book. And he said, no. And he said, it's very good that it's a Jewish who write a book about me. So in some way, it can be, it can be an asset. <coughs> but uh, at, at, at the level, I, I mean, of the chief of state, etc., I think it was uh, an asset, yeah. Do you, do you think, for example, in his relationship with Israel and the Israelis, it allowed him to go mm -hmm. further than somebody like myself, for example, could go? Do you think it gave him a sort of, because he was sort of in the club, but critical of it, as it were. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, uh, in, in Israel it was different. I think the fact that it was Jew was not a liability. 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 It was, uh, as I said, because he was considered as a traitor. Yeah. Not, of course, by all the political spectrum. And he recounted, when the foreign minister refused to give him any access, Moshe Dayan was the um, minister of defense and in charge of the occupied territory. And he, he gave an interview to Eric without any problem, because he was, he, he was doing what he wanted. He didn't care what the foreign minister will say. So they will, uh, it, it depends. But in general, you know, and we know it from uh, the debate about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian question here, the fact of uh, being a Jew uh, when you are in favor of the Palestinian right, for the, the Israelis, the worst, they prefer to have a non-Jew because it's easier to say a non-Jew that he's anti-Semitic. You can say that the, a Jew also is anti-Semitic, and he's self... Begin called him a self-hating yeah, Jew. Self-hating yeah. Jew, etc., but it has less credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a question also about the lines of journalism. I mean, you mentioned the Nahum Goldman affair, mm. where he, he was actually instrumental mm. in making a contact mm. between the Egyptians mm. and Nahum Goldman of the World Zionist and World Jewish uh, Congress. Um, 
is that going uh, pushing the boundaries of journalism a little bit too much? You think? Yes, uh, but we, we <laughs> should have a discussion with journalists. For me, it's not a problem, but I know that <laughs> some people think that is a problem. For example, you know, Eric Rouleau had little book. Um, book, uh, booklets mm -hmm. in which he wrote all his conversation. He didn't. Ha he didn't record. So since the fifties, you have tens of uh, little in which he, he he has written everything, which is now in Aix-en-Provence in Liremam, and you can you can have access to it. Mm -hmm. And I I read some of the, For example, he met to. He met Gaddafi after 1969. At some moment, he has very strong relation with Gaddafi, and he tried to mediate in the name of, of the Libyan Jews who has been expelled and uh, deprived from all their properties to to find a solution to get them back a part of their assets, etc. Is this journalism? No. I, I can only answer personally that I don't believe in uh, objectivity. I mean, the fact that. Uh, uh, the journalists are objective. Yeah, I like the formula which is attributed to Jean-Luc Godard saying objectivity is five minutes for Hitler, five minutes for the Jews. I don't believe, I mean, when I write, and no, it's, it's important, I mean, when I, for example, when I was editor-in-chief of Le Monde Diplomatique, I mean, we never, uh, we had position. I mean, you don't look at the, you can look at the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict from different background. You can see it as, okay, we are, uh, I mean, we don't take position, we, we don't take in, uh, we give the Israeli position, we give the Palestinian position, and we are uh, out of this. You can have it, having, no, to say, no, there are uh, way to seeing this conflict, which is uh, perhaps international law, perhaps colonialism, etc., which is different. And I prefer journalists who say clearly in which, uh, how they analyze the conflict, that to say we are objective and trying to give the floor to the to both sides. And in fact, <laughs> it's in general when when people say you are not objective, it's about Israel-Palestine. But when it is on Syria, they, they accept that in Syria we are not five minutes for Bashar al-Assad and five minutes for the opposition. And most of the journalists have position. Perhaps they are right or wrong. I, and I say that from my point, uh, my point of view, um, it's the plurality of point of view which is important. I don't think we will find a moment where there will be a kind of objective journalism. Uh, but the fact that we best have the expression of the different point of view. And one thing important in Eric Rouleau's uh, work is the... the the way you formulate your position as a journalist depends also where you live and where you have grown up. What I mean, when you are an Arab journalist, it's not the fact that you are more or less uh, non-objective. It is the fact that you grew up in a uh, history where Palestine was the center of the, the world. And when Al Jazeera, or in the, for example, at the moment of the Second Intifada, where making 15 minutes every uh, every uh, on, on Palestine, opening all the news on Palestine. In some way, it, 
it's normal in, uh, in the Arab world. It's not normal here. It's not, I, I'm not asking that we, we have the same, because Palestine, even if we think it's a port, it has not the same weight. So the, I think we, could, we will have a better in understanding, and in understanding of the world if we accept this plurality of point of view, which is a plurality inside each society, but it is also the fact that when you are in the South, and when you are in the doors, you don't look at the events in the same way. Your own father, Henri Curiel, appears at some length in the book. Mm. Eric writes about him quite a lot. Um, could you tell us a little bit about his story? He was an extraordinary man, and he did extraordinary things, didn't mm. he? And he met an extraordinary end. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Henri Curiel was a, the son of a... A Jewish family living in uh, in Egypt. His uh, his uh, father was a banquier, uh, banker, mm -hmm. yeah. a very rich man, and he has a very nice villa in uh, Zamalek for people who know, which is now the embassy of the Algerian Republic, which has been given by Henry to the Algerian, and he became communist uh, in the forties, like I mean. We were living very many upheaval in everywhere, and there was a national liberation movement in Egypt. Uh, there was a victory of the Soviet Union against the Nazi army, and there was a real appeal for communist and Marxist organization. And he he created um, the uh, national liberation movement, which was a communist organization. And uh, Henry understood much more than. At this time, the relation of the communist movement with national liberation was very ambiguous. I mean, they were supporting, in general, national liberation, but there was the idea that the only good national liberation it is when it is led by communists, like in Vietnam, for example. And they, there was some suspicion. For Henry and other people around him, it was so obvious that the main thing for the Egyptian people was national liberation, that even in the name of the party he created, he didn't want to, he, he wanted to make this, saying we, we are struggling for this. He created an organization which in 1946-47 played an important role. Then after there was uh, uh, partition of Palestine and uh, the communists in the Arab world took position in the, for the partition of Palestine, which was quite unpopular. And they have done it, as I said, many times people say they have done it because they were Jews. They have done it because it was a Soviet Union. At this time, no communist militant, I mean, to be a communist was to be in support of Soviet Union. So if the Soviet Union took a position, any, uh, any communist should accept it or get out of the Communist Party. So they supported this. This had some consequence. Uh, but again, in 1950, again, there was a new wave of uh, uh, national liberation, and the communists again played an important role. And at this time, uh, I don't want to develop, but the question of Palestine in Egypt was not so important. I mean, uh, the, uh, the Egyptian army has been defeated in 1948. And uh, Nasser, in his memory called Philosophie de la Révolution, remembers that they were, uh, he fought in 1948 in Fallujah and re he resisted in, a, I mean, some days a siege by the, the Israeli. 
And he said, uh, we were discussing that uh, we were not in the good fight. The good fight was in Egypt. And it, it well, this is uh, another story we can uh, develop about the, pla the place of Palestine problem in Nasser and the Egyptian nationalism. Uh, um, Curiel was expelled as a communist, as, as a Zionist, and he, like many of them, he, um, many of these people, he came to um, to France. The, the situation in the communist movement was very complicated in Egypt because there were many communist parties. So, uh, at one moment. Uh, the Communist Party, the different organizations uh, reunified themselves, but one of the conditions was to uh, to expel Henry Curiel from the Communist Movement because, uh, I mean, internal di difference. And at this moment, he um, he encountered uh, some people in France who were supporting the National Liberation Front of Algeria. So the War of Liberation began in 1954, and there were some French who were helping the uh, Algerians, which will be called les porteurs de valises, the people who carry the bags. And so he, he became involved in it, and he was very efficient, uh, especially for sending the money. As a banker, he knew how to do it. I mean, <laughs> a son of a banker. The, one of the main strengths of the National Liberation Front was to collect money among the workers in Algeria, in France and to send it to the National Liberation uh, Front. And uh, he, he invented the mechanism through the Swiss uh, banks to, to send them. He was arrested in 1960. He was uh, freed in 1962. And uh, he decided to create an, an organization semi-clandestine called Solidarity, which was going to help the National Liberation Movement everywhere to help in a concrete way, meaning, I mean, to help them make false uh, identity, how to resist uh, police, how to resist torture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And at this moment, there were quite a lot of demand because, I mean, the end of the 60s was, uh, I mean, Africa, there were quite a lot of national liberation movement. In Latin America, it was a fight against dictatorship, et cetera. And the movement developed till the, the 70s, uh, more or less, I mean, it was underground, but not to totally underground. Many people knew about it. And uh, at the same moment, he tried to make what he, uh, what will be called the conversation, the conversation de Paris, uh, a, the first contact between Zionist leaders and Pal uh, Palestinian to try to find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And there were uh, many discussions, and among the Israelis, there was uh, Avneri, there was Mathieu uh, Pellet, who was a general, etc. Bon. And then uh, Henry will be killed, assassinated in Paris in May 1978. Till now, we don't know officially who, who killed him. There are many explanations, and uh, we were discussing this. Uh, the case is still open, and we succeed at least that the case is not closed, but we are not uh, very sure. <coughs> at this moment, uh, the work of solidarity was very, um, I mean, the, the dictatorship in uh, Latin America has finished. 
the most of the national liberation movement was has succeeded at least in independence. The only case was South Africa. And they were very, very active on the South African ground. What we can say is that at this moment, which is 76, 78, there was very strong relation between France, official Giscard d'Estaing, the apartheid regime, and Morocco, and Israel. But um, it's difficult to give an answer to who uh, killed them. More or less, we know who uh, pulled the, tri uh, pull the trigger. Yes. Yeah, who pulled the trigger, which were mercenaries uh, from the extreme right. But this is not uh, what we are looking for. We, we are looking for uh, who took the responsibility. My personal feeling is that it was a French, I mean, high-level decision by the French government, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who, who had a very strange image because he was considered after Gaullism as a kind of liberal, but who was linked with the extreme right circle in France, the, pro the people who supported Algerie Francaise. And uh, I think there was, at this moment, 78, I mean, really tension between Algeria and France. And I think it was a part of this tension, but I can't prove it. In fact, apparently, according to Eric, um, there were 12 of the intelligence services who were interested. Yeah. <laughs> Take your pick, yeah. I'm going to ask one more question, if I may. Um, do you th the, the book, in the end, is really quite pessimistic because he traces the whole, all the peace efforts that went on over the years, mm. and all the time the Israelis are building more settlements, mm. uh, refusing. They never, as he points out, they never came up with a peace plan of their own. They're always reacting to others mm. and undermining other mm. peace plans. And all the time the tide is coming in, the land is shrinking, and the, Palest the Palestinian state becomes more and more of a, a, ri a ridiculous proposition because it's just fragments. Do you think, I mean, I'm asking your personal opinion now, is there chinks of hope? Should we, is there anything to be optimistic about, or is it all doom and gloom? Um, first of all, I mean, you know, I really believe in the role of men in the history. I mean, nothing is written in advance. Uh, contrary to many people who supported the who criticized the Oslo Agreement. I was criticizing the Oslo Agreement, but I thought at one moment that there could be a solution coming from the Oslo Agreement. I know very few people, I mean, supporting the Palestinians accept this. Mm. And I think the assassination of Rabin, even if Rabin was uh, in many cases negative figure, changed uh, the rule of the game. The general trend was against a solution, of course, for the reason, I mean, Zionism was not accepting really the, the, a, a solution. But you can say in, the, in some way, you can say the same of South Africa. All in, in the history of South Africa would have, so, would have pushed us to think that there will be no other solution than to expel, I mean, a, victor, a military, victor, military political victory of the, of the majority against... Uh, the white population and having a, a situation like in uh, Algeria, etc. But finally, some men played a, an important role. And I'm really impressed when, because I have been to South Africa recently because my son was living here and reading Mandela memoir. And really, I was impressed by the way he understood uh, what a solution can be. In a balance of force, which is not, uh, I mean, it's not ideal. It's not uh, 
what we we dreamed about it's not uh, but that at least permits some kind of uh, of uh, of development and in a way which uh, as i said uh, many times to uh, I, I will say something about the colonial experience. When you look at what we call colonialism, settlement colonialism, there are two cases of figures. One is the settlers are killing mostly all the local population, which happened in North America, which happened in Canada, which happened in Australia and New Zealand. Okay. You, you have no way back. You can, after, say something positive about the the remainder of the uh, original population, but there is no way. Uh, the other co uh, solution was uh, the settlers are a minority, like in Rhodesia, like in uh, South Africa, like uh, in Algeria, etc. And you get to a solution where you have uh, one man, one man, one woman, one vote, and the settler colonialism is destroyed. The only case in which we have a problem in some way is Israel-Palestine. I mean, on the, on the territory, historical of territory of Palestine, you have as much Jews as Palestinians. Meaning that the oppressed, I mean, the people who have been colonized, don't have any the advantage of number. In South Africa, it was 1 to 10 now, or 20, I don't remember, which give a quite big advantage, which is not the case in... Uh, in um, Israel-Palestine. But one of the problems of the Israeli is that they were not able to expel the population. So they are in a contradiction. I mean, the, the Palestinian movement is in a contradiction, and the Israeli, they don't have solution, because enfin, they, they have a de facto solution, which is apartheid. I mean, what we, re, we live today is, ap I mean, in the original thing, uh, meaning of the term, it's two populations, living in the same territory and not submitted to the same law, which is really what is apartheid. I mean, you, you can live, I mean, a settler at 200 meters of a Palestinian, you are not submitted to the same law and you have not the same rights. And I don't know what the political solution can be. What we can say is any solution must take into account the fact that uh, uh, the, the question of equality. And today, even if we can, um, there is a problem discussing the Palestinian authority, the state should, have, should they maintain the authority, etc., etc., but this is a Palestinian discussion. But what we can ask for, and from, inter um, from outside, is the fact that, okay, you want any solution, the solution must guarantee the equality of both populations. But this is also, I mean, to be, if we compare it to South Africa, uh, it's complicated because one of the uh, strengths of the African National Congress was the fact that their own organization was an image of the society they want to build. I mean, there were, even if the black majority, there was white, uh, Métis, etc. PLO was a traditional national liberation movement. Of course, it brought one or two Jews, but it didn't have... Uh, so the problem is not only for the Israeli. When the Palestinians say we want to build one-state solution, uh, one-state solution with equal rights, 
You cannot build this against majority, I mean, against the unanimity of the, the Israeli population, which is a very difficult uh, statement. I, uh, I, I can't say what is, uh, how it will be solved. I think Israel is uh, in a way, in a kind of suicide mode, but they are at the same time very strong. I mean, it's not, uh, they are losing moral credibility. And when you compare what was the discussion in the 60s and the discussion today about uh, Israel, you, you understand how they lose quite a lot of uh, popular support, even if they have more, perhaps, support from the go official government, at least European and American. And this is a problem uh, for them. There is also a trend of uh, fascism. I mean, uh, people like Zev Sternel, which is not an extremist, say, uh, he compares this with the 1930s in, uh, in Germany. When you, when you consider that the, your neighbor is not a human being, he has not the same right, you are in a very difficult uh, process. But, uh, <coughs> well. Sure. Well, I think it's time we uh, got some more questions in here. Um, do we have a microphone, or are we just going to get people to shout? There is a microphone, yeah, sure. If you could keep the uh, questions as sh as to the point as possible rather than making political declarations. And uh, don't speak until you get the microphone because it's the magic wand. And uh, perhaps uh, you could then uh, keep your questions quite yeah, concise so we can get yeah, yeah, your yeah, questions yeah, yeah. in. Yeah, we thank. can take uh, two or three questions and I answer. Oh, them. would you prefer that? Perhaps. So, yeah. okay. so we'll take two or three questions at a time and then... Um, well, actually, that means bicycling the thing around and waiting. Let's do one at a time. Might be better, yeah. But please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, my name is Jad. I'm a third-year student here at LSE. Uh, you mentioned something I found very interesting that it is uh, conventional in the past that those who journalists who went to the Middle East are expected to cover the Middle East for their entire professional career. Uh, this is not the case today, and you see correspondents going from here, from Middle East to <laughs> Moscow, to become national correspondents. And I'm just wondering, what do you think that uh, implied to the quality of the coverage? Let's answer that question meanwhile. Who, did, can we line up another one? We'll do this one next, yeah. So do you want to answer that? Yeah. So one of the problems of journalism is not, I mean, is this, but it's also that now more and more people get their information from television, uh, 24 hours television, in which you don't have any analysis, you have only pseudo-facts even, they don't have facts. And uh, the people who, who, te who tell the news, you can find many times that they don't know they are speaking about what. I mean, this is, a, and the difference is, before you had television, I mean, in the 60s, 70s, of course, not uh, live television uh, in the way we know it today. But for example, in France, when there was an international affair in the television, they will quote the Monde and will take the information from the Monde. 
Examine the world was deciding in, in some way what was the hierarchy of the information and what will we will stress on this or this one. Today it has completely changed because the, the uh, because of this uh, weight of the of the television and the fact also that we are in a, in uh, in television now is subjective thirty seconds one minute and you know sometimes. Uh, you you speak of a country, and uh, look uh, about what we, we we read on uh, Syria. I I wonder what I mean when you speak about North East Syria and Turkey. And I know I wonder how many people understand and know where where is Syria, where is North East Syria, what are the, the where are the Kurds, etc. So it's it's really problematic. But I don't want to be completely pessimist because. Uh, in some way, we have also alternative media, we have internet, which permit, uh, <coughs> as, I, uh, as Jim said, I have created a, a, news, uh, a newspaper online, uh, giving in-depth information about the Middle East. I, couldn't, I, could, I wouldn't have been able to do it 20 years ago without internet. Mm. So we have these possibilities. Oh, this gentleman here. Thank you. <coughs> Hi, uh, my, uh, my name is Alberto Portugues, and I would like to ask two, two questions. One is, if you think that uh, Mr. Rouleau was aware of the millions paid to Arafat to make sure that the situation is never solved, but he has to play the role that he's trying to solve the problem. And the, and the current government is still suing the, his widow for the millions he, do, he took in, put in the three banks. And the other question is how, if he, as a journalist, was, was a kind of a friend of the truth, uh, could he reconcile that with becoming a diplomat when he had to be exactly the opposite? Those are my mm. I have more questions. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, on the second question, uh, it's a, it's a different job. I mean, he decided when he decided to become a diplomat, he decided not to be a journalist. I mean, it's not uh, so shocking. I mean, uh, I, I re personally, I regret the choice because I think he had much more weight in uh, as a journalist than a diplomat. But. It's a choice. I mean, you can change your, uh, the way you work. And in some way, it was positive to have a guy uh, who has his background, able to understand the problem, and especially when he was in Tunis and uh, in the PLO. The question of the PLO, I mean, I don't think, I mean, that there was corruption in the PLO is out of, I mean, it's, uh, of course, very, very clear. No, nobody denied it. But... Um, you know, the National Liberation Arm, uh, Movement in Algeria was completely corrupt before 1962. Not completely, but there was real corruption. And, and okay, and, and after. I mean, the Israeli, I mean, corruption is, of course we, we must fight corruption, and, uh, but we must refuse the idea that uh, the fact that they are corrupt makes that they have no rights. The right of the Palestinian people is not linked with uh, the corruption of their leaders. And 
What is the corruption of a leader? And it's, we can enter a very long debate. A part of uh, Arafat was not living on a, I mean, he was a, a kind of austere man. I mean, he was not uh, having lavish uh, apartment. He, he, was, he was interested only in politics. I mean, he was not interested in money, etc. Even if his wife uh, took uh, uh, some money. So, Again, uh, the fact when uh, there was all this attack after the failure of, of uh, Oslo agreement on, uh, uh, on Arafat, my answer was to say, I mean, it's not, a, I mean, you cannot attack them as if they were a state. They are not a state. They are, they are living in, in uh, terrible conditions under occupation, etc., etc. So, I, I, there are many things that I don't like the way they are doing politics, but uh, let's make a state, and after we'll see and how you, we fight against corruption. And uh, we know that to fight against corruption is not, uh, it's not only there, it's only in France, in Great Britain. I mean, it's a permanent fight. Can I make a quick comment? Very quick, yes. It's not just the Palestinians, it is also Israel, because mm. Sharon mm. and many politicians mm. have gone to prison. He didn't die in prison because he was old and very ill. Mm. They are old, and, and we corrupt them. <coughs> the weapon manufacturers who want to sell corrupt them. In the, all over the world, all countries in Africa. I spoke to Ben Bella in Algeria, and I know very well it's, it's all money, and it's the the whole world, and while we go on making and selling weapons, it's, it, it's a waste of time to be thinking that the politicians can do better. Mm. It's impossible. They are, they, we force politicians to lie to us, because they have to tell us all the time they are working for peace, mm. but they have to promote their industry, their export, mm. keep the people employed. So it, how can you reconcile that? No, most of, the, I mean, most of the corruption is coming from the West. <coughs> I mean, we speak about yeah. the corruption in Iraq, which is at level unimaginable. A part of the corruption is the American army yeah. itself. And then the part of the corruption is the fact that you are selling things, like we are selling to the Saudi. They don't need. But it's important. I mean, it's important. We say that it's important for our uh, industry, for our defense strategy, etc., etc. Ted. I suppose I should wait and, and read the book, um, but I, I would like to ask his, uh, what you think his ideas about Lebanon were during the early part of the Lebanese civil war in the, in the mid-70s to around 80. One would expect from what you've said about his background that he would have a lot of sympathy for what you might call the progressive side that was fighting the, what they call the Christian rightist side or whatever back in those days. And I do remember one um, living there at that time. He came and something happened while he was there. And the headline in the Orient Le Jour was Rouleau Roulé. But I don't exactly know what happened. He, he, I, I thought he might have got beaten up or something like that. But what, what was his take on that? Um, uh, I think, in, uh, you know, the civil war in Lebanon is very interesting in some way. Because in, it came in the beginning at a, move, a movement of important reform inside Lebanon against confessionalism. 
Really, the people who thought I, with the idea we are going to finish with confessionalism, and for this we must crush the extreme right movement. And a second aspect was the solidarity of the uh, with the Palestinians. But very quickly, and this is unfortunately the case of many civil wars, after six months, one year, mostly was about survival, uh, paying the militia, may, meaning that you, you need to take money to, to finance the militia. And the ideology was weaker and weaker. I had a, you know, one of the rare um, multi-confessional party was the co uh, Lebanese Communist Party. And there were quite a lot of Christians. And I have a friend who, was a, who is a writer, and he was from uh, Christian Orthodox. And he, he fought uh, in the, I mean, the militia of the Communist Party. After some week, uh, some months, the party came to see him and said, <laughs> we are going to change your identity card to write Muslim, because otherwise you will be in danger. And then even this is, is not, was not enough. And so he decided to go to Zgorta, which was one of the fiefdom of the, the right wing, to be protected, and he will be protected by his family. And one of the experiences we see, I mean, also in the Arab Spring, uh, is the fact that even if there are some justification in using armed struggle, in general, the consequences are, are dire. I mean, I, I, I tell it for Algeria, there was no other way for the Algerian people than to use uh, armed struggle. And at the same time, they are paying this choice till now. We need a question from ladies. Come on, you're being very shy this evening. Please. I have a question. I haven't read the book, so I oh. apologize in advance. I'm so sorry. Someone um, no, it's okay. You're both ladies. You can, uh, <laughs> you, you can go first and then we'll... I, I wanted to ask you if he had written on the 1982 invasion of uh, Lebanon, you know, Sharon, etc. What was his view on that? <laughs> and then I'll hand the microphone over. Uh, no, of course he has been. Uh, I, I think he was in Beirut in '82. Um, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I think he, he covered it. And '82, uh, perhaps it was a turning point in the Western view of Israel, because uh, it was the, the moment. I mean, '82, the invasion of Lebanon, and '87, the first Intifada, was the way the moment. Uh, the public opinion changed really in an important way, at least in France, but I think in general in Western Europe, because it was not, nobody could say that the uh, invasion of Lebanon was a war of, uh, a war of uh, defensive, and uh, so, and there was, as you know, an important opposition also in Israel. So I think it was this kind of thing that he wrote in, uh, in Le Monde, but I, I, I can't remember for sure. Oh, he, he does, yes. Yes, he does, yeah. Okay. <coughs> Hello, thank you for this great talk. Um, I, you mentioned that at this point in journalism that there is no one like Eric, there is nothing like Le Monde, etc. And I was wondering exactly what you meant by that and what your arguments were, because from my perspective, we have more media than ever, and while there might be more bullshit than ever as well, mm -hmm. um, 
There's wow. also, you know, it's not unusual f anymore for a journalist to, to have a connection with both the Arab world and the Western world. It's not unusual for a journalist to be able to speak Arabic and also write in English or French. Mm -hmm. And you have more biculturalism, more bilingual people, um, you know, more perspectives than ever. So I was wondering um, what you meant by kind of lamenting that time. No, uh, my my take was mostly about the written press, the traditional written press. I mean, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Le Monde was what we call journal de référence mm -hmm. uh, for not only France, but I think largely. Now you don't have the equivalent. That doesn't mean that there are not people covering the... But an article of Hulu in the 70s meant, I think, has much weight than any article of a journalist today because you don't have the equivalent of Le Monde. The equivalent meaning the rel relative weight of Le Monde if you compare it with the, all the media in the 70s. It was really, really very important. Perhaps the International uh, in the New York Times has, but I'm not, um, I'm not convinced. But so the problem is the media landscape has completely changed. But you have, of course, you have people uh, bilingual now and in writing, and so you, you have, uh, I, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not, uh, how to say, uh, nostalgic and saying, oh, it was so, mm -hmm. it was better when we were young, and etc. No, it, but it has changed completely, meaning you don't have any guy like Rouleau possible today. But that doesn't mean that you don't have journalism. You have, uh, you have journalism and you can have good journalism. I'll just add in something that uh, my friend David Hurst, I told him we were going to be having this event. Um, and he, he, just referring back to um, his experience of reading Rouleau, they were quite close friends as well. Um, he said it was Rouleau alone who told us all about the falling out between Nasser and his closest friend, Field Marshal Amer, held chiefly responsible for the disaster of 1967 and his subsequent suicide. Not, however, in the breathless, sensational fashion typ typical of the great scoop that it was, but as part of a sober, in-depth analysis of the whole Egyptian scene. And for years thereafter, I used to hang on his writings that came characteristically in the form of those big three- or four-part series, which I think were virtually unique to Le Monde, the august and very serious newspaper which he wrote. So he was uh, really very special, and people who were really interested were actually waiting for his articles. That doesn't really happen very much nowadays. To give an example of the difference, Rouleau uh, covered quite a lot Sudan, which was, uh, and he went to Sudan after the Nimeri coup in 1969, and then after the attempt coup of the extreme left, which and in a bloodbath against the Communist Party and the hanging of Hadil Khalik Mahjoub, etc., etc. At this moment, I mean, this, I mean, he wrote three or four articles about this attempt coup d'état of the extreme left. Uh, you couldn't find anything else in any other newspaper. This makes the special weight of Hulu at this moment. Today, covering um, Sudan, you have much more things. I mean, it's not uh, the same, but you don't have, I mean, at least in the Western press, something equivalent to, to what Rouleau have done. And the fact that he has done this on Yemen, meaning going weeks and weeks in, uh, in, in a country and meeting people and... Uh, 
And uh, as he said, as uh, Jim said about, uh, for example, the attempt coup d'état of Abdel Hakim Hamir after the defeat of 1967, Rouleau was the first to give the information because he has really access uh, to to Nasser and to the people around him and. Uh, Um, a bit of gender balance. We'll have a guy there and then the lady here, if you don't mind over there. <coughs> well, thank you. Um, you mentioned a couple of times that, uh, for example, in Le Monde, they refused to publish a few articles that was targeted towards specific issue. What do you think is happening today? And if the same is happening, what? Uh, what are the organizations that have some sort of leverage over these news media that um, kind of stops these articles from being published? That's it. Uh, it's a complicated question. I mean, an editor-in-chief has the right to, to choose to publish or not to publish uh, the article of, his, of Jodes. Why to, to publish or why not to publish? It's, it's a balance. Uh, you know, when I was editor-in-chief of Le Monde, there was this question of... Uh, the um, drawing against uh, Mohammed uh, in uh, <coughs> in uh, Denmark or Norway, I don't know, remember. So when I was asked about it, I would say, okay, it, everybody is free to publish it. But I, as editor-in-chief, I refuse to publish this. It's a decision. I mean, uh, w you best understand why there are this decision and why it is sometimes so complicated to write, especially on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, because we know there are pressures, there are... Uh, uh, Rouleau said that you, you have, I mean, hundreds of letters sent to the, to, the, to the editor of Le Monde against him. I mean, it was really well-organized campaign against him. At the end, he has... I mean, I don't think it had many consequences, but... It creates a climate, and if somebody with less uh, prestige and rouleau right, it will be more difficult for him. And on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think a part of um, the position of the journalists is uh, they are afraid of writing. They are afraid for two reasons. One, because when you don't know very well the question, it's very difficult. I mean, Israel-Palestinian conflict is a very complicated one. one. I mean, with a long history, etc. When you are a young journalist and uh, beginning to write about it, and say, okay, I mean, I'm going to <laughs> to have hell against me if I if I write. So, but this is a normal uh, normal thing. I mean, normal debate. Again, there is nothing. Uh, I think there is nothing like objectivity, which say. In a perfect world, we will have articles which will be objective. It's a, it's a, it's a choice. There's a lady over here. I can, I can shout. Uh, maybe they're not here at the back, though, because you're pointing this way. So. Alain Kresch, thank you very, very much for your um, talk. It was extremely refreshing to hear you talk about it being impossible, really, for journalists to be objective, and the five minutes for the Jews, five minutes for the Nazis, is exactly the quote. <laughs> That's that the BBC philosophy, I tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, uh, I wanted actually to ask you about the present and to ask you about your view, because you've described some of the difficulties of journalists who understood and followed what was happening to the Palestinians over the years, Eric Rouleau, 
not being published when he talked about torture. Um, in an odd kind of way, what's happening now is a kind of displacement, so that it's not it's not that it's difficult to talk about what happens to the Palestinians. It's difficult to talk about, for instance, the boycott and divestment campaign. I don't know if you're following. I'm sure you are mm. what's happening in mm. Germany. Mm. And uh, so the Bundestag motion, which said that the boycott campaign is uh, anti-Semitic. Um, so I just wonder if you have any comment on that. So, so the kind of odd sort of way of making it equally impossible to talk about Palestinian rights and what's happening to the Palestinians is the attack on the boycott movement. Mm. Uh, just uh, one comment about Eric Rouleau. I mean, it was only one example, and it was in 1968, I think, uh, where the image of Israel was so positive, etc., etc. Uh, that doesn't mean that there was no fight inside the moon because there were different trends. But in general, he wrote he, uh, he wrote what he wants. I mean, and more the I mean, the older he, he became, the easier it was for him to. To write, even if he if uh, if he was attacked, uh, and you know, the Israel-Palestinian conflict is the only conflict which is internal to each country now. I mean, it's, uh, in France at, at least, you have international affairs, in uh, uh, local, I mean, national affairs, and you have the Israel-Palestinian conflict, which is internal affair today. One of the things, you know, we must not be completely pessimist. I have been following this conflict since at least 1967. In 1967, I grew, I mean, I saw, I mean, a, a pro-Israeli propaganda. You cannot believe what it was. Uh, and uh, I, I, rem I uh, recall that Le François, which was the biggest newspaper, uh, one million circulation, on the 5th of June at 6 in the morning, they made Egypt attack Israel. And it, they didn't want to lie uh, deliberately. It was only it, it, coming from Tel Aviv, we have been attacked, and we believe the Israeli, we don't believe the Arabs. We know that the Arabs are all, always lying. And this has changed. Also, we... Uh, the situation today is something, but we have been able to make scene change in the 80s and the 90s and to make the Palestinian cause something more accepted. Now there, I think we are going back for many reasons. There is a kind of Palestinian fatigue, uh, of fatigue people say, I mean, except the militant, 50 years and no solution. And uh, There is also the, the fact, I think, that a part of the journalists are afraid because the Israelis are making really a good campaign to discredit the solidarity of the Palestinians, much better than uh, years ago. And But at the same time, there is a kind of contradiction. When you, you look at the polls in Europe, um, most of the people consider Israel responsible for the, what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the no, no solution. But the leader, no. It demands, uh, I have one take, but I'm not sure, I mean, uh, my generation grew up with the Holocaust outside of our mind. <laughs> when I passed the baccalaureate in 1965, uh, uh, the Holocaust in our history book is, was two lines. I mean, really, 
Dura, tu Hitler a killed 6 million Jews. The next generation, which is now in power, it was the main subject of history, in part for good reason. I mean, uh, we cannot say it was only propaganda. No, it, it was France redis has redis rediscovered the role the French state has played in killing of Jews. And we are responsible. And, uh, uh, and I think it's a positive thing that we accept this responsibility. So, but the guys who are in power uh, of this generation, they look now at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through the Holocaust eyes, which is stupid in my opinion, but this has also a, an important, uh, important weight. But I, I imagine it's not the only explanation. We can, uh, there must be uh, other, other explanation. And one of the things we have, yeah, which is clearly political, the division inside the Palestinian camp between Hamas and Fatah. And also, yes, there is a, no, something also very, very important, is the war against terror. If our view of the world today is a war against terror, if this is correct, Israel is a terror ally. If you think it's bullshit, like I think, this question of war against terror, it's different. But you have created the idea that, <coughs> okay, I mean, the Israelis, they don't behave well, but look, they have so many terrorists, so many Arabs, so many... And the fact that, you know, in France, we have a debate about security. And for the first time, there was a part of the leader saying, we should do like they do. I mean, they have an experience. They know how to fight terrorism, etc. Well, thank you very much for your questions. I think it's time we have to wrap it up. The clock says it's 7.30, yeah. and I've been told we have to stop. But before I release you into the wild, there's a couple of housekeeping yeah, announcements. Just yeah, two sure. Okay. I just make two, two small announcements. <laughs> One is about Orient 21. Uh, just, you have some leaflets, I mean, we are in a newspaper publishing one article a day in French five times a week, twice in Arabic, once in, in English and a little in uh, Persian, and uh, I think it's, <coughs> it's free, uh, I mean, you can, it's free access, uh, you, can, uh, um, you can read it, you can make it known, and you can write also. We are interested to have people writing uh, about, uh, we publish piece of 2,000 words in, in, in general. So it's... Uh, Do you publish what you receive from... from Not all, from I mean, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> but because, because when I write to the newspapers here yeah. mm -hmm. about food, about music, about literature, they always publish what I write. Mm -hmm. When I write about politics and against the armed straight, they never have space. No, against armed straight we will publish. <laughs> we, we don't have problem. We don't have problem. No, no, I'm not, not uh, the media. <coughs> And just to tell you that you can buy Ericulo books for the uh. price of 20 pounds, which is less than yeah, the official price. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, more, don't, don't start going yet. It's two housekeeping announcements from the Middle East Center. On Thursday, 21st November, is the next event here. It's a book launch for methodolog methodological approaches in Kurdish studies, colon, theoretical and practical insights from the field. I don't know which field. Um, secondly, um, I'm to tell you about the LSE's um, um, 
the Middle East Center's Master's Dissertation Prize. Entries are invited from any LSE master's student in the social sciences, arts, and humanities whose dissertation deals with the Middle East and North Africa. That is the Arab League member states plus Turkey, Iran, and Israel. Applicants must have completed their dissertation in the 2018 to 19 academic year and received a minimum score of 65. Applicants must submit by 30th November 2019. Now you can go home, but try and buy this book on the way out. And Alain, who wrote the foreword, might even sign it for you if you ask him nicely. No extra charge. Um, can you join me in saying thank you very much to Alan for being here? <laughs>